0: Welcome to the Waterstone Community Church Podcast. We are now in the sermon series of Ezekiel, which is the story of a leader called to deal with catastrophe. When Israel was invaded by Babylon, Ezekiel found himself in exile, living among his displaced people who refused to see what was right before their eyes. God reveals his purposes in some of the most wild and unforgettable images in the Bible. To learn more about Waterstone, please visit waterstonechurch.org. We are located off C-470 in Bowles in Littleton, Colorado. Services are on Saturdays at 5.30 p.m. and Sundays at 9 and 10.30 a.m.
1: A reading from the book of Ezekiel. The man brought me back to the entrance to the temple and I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple toward the east where the temple faced east. The water was coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar. He then brought me out through the north gate and led me around the outside to the outer gate, facing east, and the water was trickling from the south side. As the man went eastward with a measuring line in his hand, he measured off a thousand cubits and then led me through water that was ankle-deep. He measured off another thousand cubits and led me through water that was knee-deep. He measured off another thousand and led me through water that was up to the waist. He measured off another thousand, but now it was a river that I could not cross because the water had risen and was deep enough to swim in, a river that no one could cross. He asked me, Son of man, do you see this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. When I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. He said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Araba, where it enters the Dead Sea. When it empties into the sea, the salty water there becomes fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There will be large numbers of fish because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh, so where the river flows, everything will live. "'Fishermen will stand along the shore. "'From Engedi to Egliam, there will be places for spreading nets. "'The fish will be of many kinds, like the fish of the Mediterranean Sea. "'But the swamps and marshes will not become fresh. "'They will be left for salt. "'Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. "'Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. "'Every month they will bear fruit "'because the water from the sanctuary flows to them.' Their fruit will serve for food, and their leaves for healing. The word of the Lord.
2: The answer, 175. There you go. The question, how many days until Christmas? As a child... We couldn't wait for Christmas because we would get new stuff. And if you get new stuff, life is complete. Tony Campolo, a great writer, he talks about how when he was a child, he got a new train set. I was overcome with joy. A sense of ecstasy surged through me. I loved everything. I loved everybody. The world became radiant and wonderful, and a sense of aliveness permeated my consciousness. I stayed in my state of heightened awareness and sensitivity for almost three hours. And then something happened to the trains. They didn't break, broken trains can be fixed. Something far worse than that happened to them. They became old. And everything new becomes old. Churches get old. I sit with you in the membership class. You're all excited about the people and the programs and the pastors and the worship. And I think, yeah, but when it gets old, are you going to stay around? And uh, people get old. The answer is eight The question is, how many people in the entire world can call me great uncle? And it's not because of my uncling skills. (laughs) And God gets old. You know when God gets old? The moment you think you have him figured out. Anything gets old to us that has no mystery. That's why a toddler who knows nothing about anything has the world as his playground. But as we get older, we see it more and more that everything new becomes old. And so we change strategies, right? Then we we feel we need to begin to protect the old. You know, these new ideas, uh uh-uh, you know, play it safe. Give me that old time religion. And so people leave the church because it gets old and people leave the church because it gets new. And all of this is because we're not home yet. We're always homesick. C.S. Lewis, all of your life, there has been an unobtainable ecstasy that has hovered just beyond the grasp of your consciousness. When you are starting in on a pleasurable experience, you think, ah, finally, this is it and yet you never have it. All the things that have ever deeply possessed your soul have been but hints of it, tantalizing glimpses, promises never quite fulfilled. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of the tune we have not heard, news from a country we have not yet visited. It is a music we are born remembering. And so we get a new train set for Christmas, and it gets old. And we uh, get a new church, and uh, it gets old. And we go camping, and it definitely gets old. And we we get new friends, and they get old. And we marry a bride, and now it's time to begin the sermon. <laughs> Ezekiel got old. By the time he writes these last visions, he is in his 50s. It's been 25 years of ministry to the exiles in Babylon. And not only is he old, the people are getting old about this situation. It's like, how long is this exile going to last? We're thousands of miles from home living under an oppressive regime. Are we going to be buried in Babylon? And so... Ezekiel pulls out the greatest tool from the prophetic tool belts that a prophet has: Hope. He's going to give his people hope. He's going to give Waterstone hope today. What? Oh, how do you know when you've preached a prophet well? Two things. One, you're hacked off. Seriously. Prophets preach judgment. Now when we hear judgment, we hear condemnation. They're not the same. Condemnation may be an outcome of the judgment, but judgment means examination from God's point of view. And so a prophet preaches judgment. He says, we are going to look at our lives from God's point of view. And what do we see? And often the initial response to preaching judgment is anger. We don't like having ourselves confronted. We don't like having to take a hard look at what's going on inside. We don't like to have our toes stepped on. We don't like to have anyone question our righteousness. And so we get angry. Have you been angry during the last eight weeks in Ezekiel? Some of your political toes stepped on. Some of your church toes stepped on. Some of your personal morality toes stepped on. I hope you've been angry. If you haven't been, we haven't preached it well. By the way, anger is the initial response. Hopefully that anger dissipates into the right response, which is repentance. Repentance means looking at the good and keeping it and seeing what's wrong and turning that around. Repentance. You know, the uh, second response is first is judgment, the second is hope. Prophets preach hope and so today we're going to see ezekiel's hope and he's going to give hope to waterstone he tells us three things that hope comes from looking at the past hope comes from looking at the present hope comes from looking at the future past present future let's go to the past at the end of uh, chapter 37 remember nick a few weeks ago preached the dry bones The book could have ended there. I mean, really, if you look at the end of chapter 37, there's a messianic ruler. Probably, you know, we think Ezekiel's seeing Jesus there. And there's a temple in the land, and the people are regathered. And the text says that the Lord's glory has been shown to the nations. That means the nations have seen that God matters most, and the Lord's faithfulness has been proven to his people. Period. It could have ended right there. Or it could have gone on to chapters 40 to 48 where you have this whole temple thing, which we'll talk about in a a moment. But uh, there's the description of a temple. So it could have been the Lord is home with his people, there's a temple, and here's what the temple looks like. No, no, in the middle of it we get Ezekiel 37, and then we have these weird chapters 38 and 39 about a battle with a guy named Gog from the land of Magog the chief prince of Tubal and Meshach. What is this? And if you read those chapters, 38 and 39, they are graphic. It's, each chapter has four battle scenes where they describe what's going on. Let's just look first at how it's introduced to us. Chapter 38, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, set your face against Gog, of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, prophesy against him and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says, I am against you, Gog, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. I will turn you around, put hooks in your jaws, and bring you out with your whole army, your horses, your horsemen fully armed, and a great horde with large and small shields, all of them brandishing their swords, Persia, Cush, and Put will be with them, and all the shields and the helmets, and also Gomer with all its troops, and Beth Tugomara from the far north with all its troops, and the many excuse me nations with you. A battle scene is about to unfold. And then... It happens, all these seven nations, some of them not even known to Israel, the idea there is that every nation in the world that's not with God is going to rise up against a resettled Israel and try to eradicate God's people and take God's agenda down. But it is an annihilation. God wins. It says, it goes on to say, he he throws hail at them. Have, Have you seen any hail lately? He throws burning sulfur at them. He throws plagues at them. And the result is that there, it takes seven months to bury the dead. Seven months. And then God calls the birds and the animals to come, and it literally says, to my table, to eat the decaying flesh. And it says, from all the weapons lying on the ground, gathered up and burned, it's enough to heat the whole country for seven years. And then notice how it ends in chapter 39, then, then they will know that I am the Lord their God, for though I sent them into exile among the nations, I will gather them to their own land, not leaving any behind. I will no longer hide my face from them, for I will pour out my spirit on the people of Israel, declares The sovereign Lord. It's a war. It's against this Gog of Magog. Who is that? Well, that's been the 2,000 year question. Augustine in the fourth century thought it was the Goths from the north coming down. Luther, Martin Luther, thought it was the Turks coming from the east. I grew up in the church, a very fundamentalist strain of Christianity. And I can remember as a teenager going to prophecy conferences. If any of you have ever been to a prophecy conference, they have these whole time charts up in the front of the the, uh, church telling when everything was going to happen. And I can remember a speaker saying that uh, Gog was actually the Soviet premier of Russia in the 1970s, Leonid Brezhnev. Why? Because that phrase, the chief prince of Tubal and Meshach, the Hebrew word for chief is the word rosh. So it's simple, rosh, rasha. <laughs> and I guess not. I agree with the video on this one. I think Gog is referring to any government or government leader who has raised himself or herself up to take the place of God. So in doing that, they try to eradicate God's people. They try to exterminate people whom they believe have no value. And they try to demand from their people an allegiance that only God deserves. And anyone who does that, we might say a new Hitler, just as I think Gog was known to the exiles in Babylon when Ezekiel writes, if we were to say a dictator is rising and we would say it's a new Hitler, we would know what that means. And Gog is rising. Here's the thing. History is filled with Gogs. In history, Gogs swim. But in the end of history, God wins. That's the point. This is a domination. This is an annihilation of any government that sets itself up in the place of God. God wins in 1990. This is in the speech that Charles Colson gave when he won the Templeton Prize, a humanitarian award. And um, he told the story of the declining years in the Soviet Empire, there were cracks in the armor. And in 1990, May Day, as was the tradition, they had a military review in the grandstand in Red Square. Mikhail Gorbachev and all the military generals standing on the edge. But there were protesters darting between the troops, marching, and the tanks coming, and the missile trucks darting. And all of a sudden, from under the platform, an orthodox priest crawls out and he drags they don't know how he got it in there a life size cross and he holds it up in front of Mikhail Gorbachev and says Mikhail Gorbachev Christ is risen Amen. that was a symbolic moment of Ezekiel 38 and 39 in history gogs swim. At the end of history, God wins. And that last word of history is resurrection. The power over sin and death. I remember Oscar Wilde's play, Salome. He portrays the Herod figure stomping on the stage. Someone just told Herod that this man from Nazareth named Jesus has been raising the dead, and he's mad. I don't allow anyone to raise the dead. I forbid anyone to raise the dead. Someone must find this man and tell him, I forbid him to raise the dead. (laughs) Someone once asked, Leslie Newbegin, a great British missiologist, as you think about the politics of our world and as you think about the future, are you an optimist or a pessimist? Leslie Newbegin said, I am neither an optimist nor a pessimist. Christ is risen from the dead. Can I tap some of you on the shoulder? Some of you, you're spending all day watching Fox News. You're feeding your worry. You're fueling your debates. Some of you are listening to NPR all day. Feeding your worry, fueling your debates. Can I tell you something using the words of a great preacher from the South? Stop it. <laughs> You're scaring the children. No matter who wins the election, Christ is risen. No matter what disasters come, hail, tornadoes, floods, Christ is risen. No matter the stock market goes up or down, Christ is risen. No matter what they're saying about you at your job, No matter what the doctor is saying about your body, no matter what decisions your children are making, he is risen indeed. Hope within history. God swims, but God wins. That's hope. And hope comes from the present. Ezekiel says, and he gives us this picture of the temple. What's going on with this picture of the temple? Is it literal? Is it something going to be built again? I don't think so. I'll tell you why, five reasons. Don't worry, real quick. Here's why I don't think this temple is literal or going, something that's going to be built, physically. One, there's no mention of a uh, restored physical temple in the New Testament, two. In the Revelation, when you get to chapters 21 and 28 and the new heavens and the new earth, when heaven comes down and we live forever with God, there's no temple. Read it. No temple. Uh, Third, when Jesus came in John chapter 2, he said, he's the temple, the new temple. Four, when Jesus left, he sent his spirit down to live where? In his temple. You are his temple. You look marvelous. Five, if you actually get in and start digging around into these blueprints, you begin to notice a couple of interesting things. First, it's perfect symmetry. They've interviewed architects who said you would never be able to build a building of this, these measurements. And also, there's only one vertical measurement in the whole thing in chapter 40. All of the, and by the way, they didn't build this temple when Ezra and Nehemiah came back, this temple, could not be built with those measurements. Here's the point, I don't think God is talking about building a physical structure. Rather, these are blueprints for how God builds a people. So how does God build a people? Well, that's a great question and we could preach a series of messages from these chapters just on how God builds his people. Let me give you two quick things to notice. First, when he talks about the temple, it's interesting. If you look at chapter 43, The man brought me to the gate facing east, and I saw the glory of God of Israel coming from the east. His voice was like the roar of rushing waters. The land was radiant with his glory. The vision I saw was like the vision I had seen when he came to destroy the city and like the visions I had seen by the Kabar River. I fell face down again. The glory of the Lord entered the temple through the east gate, and then here we go, the spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court for fellowship with God, and the glory of the Lord filled his temple. How does God build a people? He always begins by moving in. The word became flesh and dwelt. You know what that word dwelt literally can be translated as? Tabernacled. We're the temple he moves in whenever god's out to build a people the first thing he does is he takes up residence within them so what does it mean just practically to have the spirit living in you because it says in the new testament whenever we say jesus i'm yours he moves in the holy spirit lives in us we become a temple carrying the spirit of god So what does that mean? Well, Paul preaches Ezekiel in Romans eight. He says the first thing that means is that the love of the Father is poured into your heart so that you cry out, Abba, Father. One of the first experiential things that happen when you receive Christ is you have this presence in your life, this loving Father presence who says no matter what you end up, where you end up, how you mess up, I'm there and I'm always with you and I'm always looking for you. Sinclair Ferguson, a great Scottish preacher of our day. I heard him preach a message years ago on Romans 8 and he told this amazing story of a missionary family home on a break. They had uh, access to a lakeside cabin up in New Hampshire. And it was a majestic day. Dad was in the barn doing project, the three kids were out playing in the yard and mom was resting in the house. Two girls and a little boy, Billy, three years old, and it was one of those parent moments when you suddenly stop for a moment, and you think, wait, it's way too quiet. Dad walks out, and he only sees the two daughters playing, and he says, where's Billy, where's Billy? Frantically, they start looking for Billy, they see one of his toys on the dock, on the lake. Dad instinctively jumps in, and there's Billy, holding on to the cement post that's holding up the dock. Eyes wide open, and when he sees his dad, he just smiles. They get him up, Billy, are you okay? Dad asks, Billy, Billy, what were you doing down there? And Billy says, just waiting for you. No matter where you go, no matter what mess you're in, no matter how you've hurt your life, he's there. He is with you. He's not only with you, he's for you. Because that passage goes on in Romans 8 to say, not only does he pour the love into our hearts so we cry father, but it says his spirit testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. Folks, that's an amazing statement because what that is is your identity. Before you are anything else, you are a child of God, first and last. Doesn't matter what the people at work are saying about you. Doesn't matter what your loved ones are saying about. You. Doesn't matter what anyone else thinks about you. The only opinion of you that counts is God's. And he says, "My kid, God is with you. And God is for you." And so he moves in, but secondly, you have to ask, well, how does he have the access to do that? I mean, we're sinful, he's holy. How can we ever have that father-child relationship when there's a barrier called sin between us? Well, that's the rest of the temple in Ezekiel. The first part is, you know, God moves in, but the second part is how he establishes relationship. If you read the blueprints, two really interesting things. Makes me smile. The first is that the altar in this temple is four times the size of the altar in the Exodus temple. It's twice the size of the altar in Solomon's temple. And when they, and Herod built the temple, it was twice the size of that. I mean, this is a huge, you're supposed to walk in and see, before you see anything else, the altar. Why? Why? Well, the altar is the place where the blood was shed. The altar is the place where sins were forgiven. First thing God wants us to see when we walk into this temple is that your sins are forgiven. And then the other interesting thing, there are four kitchens in this temple, one on each corner. It's a Baptist temple. (laughs) They want to get the sacrifices on the table quick. This is about grace. This is about the relationship that God wants to have with you. He's establishing it, and guess what? He's taking care of all the sin problems. He is forgiving you. There's the altar, and he wants it. Grace in your hands, quick. There's four kitchens to prepare the sacrifices. Grace. Talk about a hopeful word. Grace. Grace in the present. God forgiving our sins. Grace, you know, I screw up a lot. I've been married 31 years, and some days it feels like the first day because of the way I'm shooting my mouth off. The way I'm working for my agenda. You'd think you'd get better at it. Some days I am. Other days, and then I have these perpetual sins that are always you know, jumping into my life and knocking me over. Well, what I've become accustomed to over the years is when I have a particularly like rough shame day is to pull out an old song. You may have heard of it, Psalm 51. It's the song that David wrote after his great sin with Bathsheba. And when he killed Bathsheba's husband, I mean, he really scorched it. Do you know if you read that Psalm, I'm gonna let you in on something. In that Psalm, there are only four Hebrew words that describe sin. In fact, in the whole Hebrew language, there's only about four Hebrew words that describe sin. I'm telling you, sin is as boring as the summer reruns. But also in that psalm, there are 19 words that describe what God does with our sins. He washes them white as snow cottony white, launders them, uh, dissolves them. You Read it, all the different ways that God forgives our sins. It's a huge altar with four kitchens. Folks, the main event is not your sins. The main event is what God does with your sins. And he forgives you, so quit dragging them around. They're four kitchen gone. They're Gone. God forgives sins. You see, there's hope in the past. God wins. There's hope in the present. God's with you and for you, and the proof of love is that cross. He loves you. And then there's hope in the future. There, Ginny read the Ezekiel 47, one of the famous passages, again, in Ezekiel, where there's this drone tour of this new temple, and the guide points out, under the south wall of the temple, there's a drip going on. And then they walk east towards the, uh, the gatehouse on the wall, and there's a gurgle going on. Gung, 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 gung. And then they walk 1,700 feet farther, and it's up to the water, up to the knees, up, up to the ankles, knees, waist. They keep walking about a mile and a quarter down, and they're in over their heads, swimming frantically. They get to the shore. They see trees and fruit giving fruit in all months of the year. And then the guy says, look down there. Would you look down there? There's the Dead Sea. And guess what? The Dead Sea has become a fish hatchery. Fish teeming everywhere. What is all this? This is the future. This is the new heavens and the new earth come down. Now, John heard Jesus talk about this. You see, in the Feast of the Tabernacles, The Jews of Jesus' day would actually reenact Ezekiel, and they would pour water from Herod's temple, and they had a pipe system that the water would run out into the streets, symbolizing that God's presence would go out through the world and heal the world. Jesus, can you believe this, he interrupted that. In a very solemn moment, he stands up. On the last and greatest day of the festival, he said in a loud voice, it's no wonder, by the way, pastors didn't like Jesus interrupting their worship services. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. Jesus says, I'm the river. I'm the river, and if you drink of me, you will have eternal life in you. John heard Jesus say that, and then John saw this in the last vision in the Bible. In Revelation 21 and 22, there's a river, but it's not flowing from the temple. There's no temple. It's flowing from the throne of the Lamb, and this river restores the world. Now, I remind you, That John in Revelation is writing to seven churches, most of whom are being severely persecuted for their faith, for their witness. They have been hung on crosses on the public roads. They have been boiled in oil or fed to lions in the Colosseum. And John is called to pastor them. And what does a pastor say to a congregation suffering like that? Do you know what he says? The river's coming. In the end, you get me, the river. Ezekiel is ministering to a group of exiles who, by the way, will be buried in Babylon. It's not gonna get any better for them. And what does Ezekiel give them? A river. Do you know the last two words of the book of Ezekiel? The end of verse 40, chapter 48? Lord, there. The name of that city where the river flows, Lord, there. In the end, you get God. Is that enough for you? I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet, but I know in your life there's bound to come some trouble. You will have some hard days ahead of you, days of loss, days of poor health, days of frustrations, pray, days of money troubles, day, hard days. And one of the things that Ezekiel wants to give you, some of you are there now, by the way, and what he wants to give you, Ezekiel and John, is that, Lord, there. Now in the meantime, we should lament, we should try to you know, fix and survive and pray, and lean on our community and do everything we can, but the other thing that you cannot lose hold of is that even if the worst happens to you, Lord, there. 2013, we celebrated the March on Washington for the Civil Rights Movement, the 50th anniversary. There was a lot of press around it, a lot of reenactments, One of the things that captured me was an article in the Wall Street Journal on the power of Negro spirituals. And I clipped it out and came across it a little while ago. Do you know that uh, before Martin Luther King, the great Baptist pastor, stood up and gave arguably the most famous sermon in American history, the I have a dream speech, there on the mall in Washington, it was Mahalia Jackson, the great gospel singer that started everything. We have a clip of it. She sang a song called I've Been Buked, and I've been scorned. song goes on to talk about the new heavens and the new earth and crowns thrown down at feet of Jesus and robes given to the saints. Well, the Wall Street Journal press went on to talk about some complaints they had about the Negro spiritual mentality. They argued that those kinds of beliefs and those kinds of songs made the the black community docile and submissive and they stayed in slavery of their own free will. Well, that set off one of the esteemed African American historians of our day, Howard Thurman. Howard wrote this, facts make clear that this sung faith served to deepen the capacity of endurance and the absorption of suffering. It taught a people how to ride high to life, to look squarely in the face those facts that argue most dramatically against all hope, and to use those facts as raw material out of which they fashioned a hope that their environment, with all its cruelty, could not crush With untutored hands, with a sure artistry and genius created out of a vast vitality, a concept of God was wrenched from the sacred book, the Bible, the chronicle of a people who had learned through great necessity the secret meaning of suffering. This total experience enabled them to reject the annihilation and affirm a terrible right to Live. Now, I know that most of you in this room are not going to be fed to a lion, but yet there are bound to come some troubles. And when they do, the hope from the future says, even if the worst happens to you, Lord there. In the end, you get God. Is that good enough for you? What makes a Christian Christian is the inability to quit hoping. And our hope is anchored in the past. Agog swim, but God wins. Our hope is anchored in the future. The Spirit of God lives in us, and the Father is with us and for us. And the love of the Father is proven by the cross, and the Lord is for us in the future. Because in the end, we get God. God. Do you want that hope? I would submit to you that if your heart is restless today, you're wondering why you haven't had that kind of hope. Maybe it's like C.S. Lewis was talking about. It's that flower that you've had a scent of but you've never grabbed. It's that tune you've always been hearing but you've never been able to attain. I submit to you that tune is the singing of the Holy Spirit. And if you welcome him into your heart, he'll give you hope, hope. All you need to do is say, Jesus, I'm yours. I give you my heart, I give you my life, I'm yours. You can do it right now in the silence, in the reign of God. Give your life to Jesus.
0: To learn more about Waterstone, please visit waterstonechurch.org.